Hey everyone, it's Craig McLean here again, and today I've got Stu Bernston with me, the CEO of the Cairo One Wellness Centers, which are based in Chicago in the US, but they have 80 clinics in seven states. And I was joined as well, I invited Luke Brady, my co-founder, to have the conversation with Stu. He was very generous with his time, as he always is, and we discussed lots of different things, uh, including... You know, we, we, we were sort of following this conversation on from his co-founder, uh, Sam Wang, I had a chat to two weeks ago. Now, Sam went into all the detail of the business, and I just wanted to get a slightly bigger picture of from Stu about how it all works. Um, so we talked a fair bit about teamwork uh, at the management level. Um, we spoke about some of his mentors that he's had over the years to enable him to grow. And he talked about the fact that he's recently now having to hold himself accountable to a board of directors, uh, which has really pushed his performance levels um, beyond what it ever was. Um, we speak about how to keep his team of over 100 chiropractors motivated and engaged um, and how the Cairo One company needs to work hard to provide quality for these guys to enable them to be successful. Um, and we also got a snapshot of what he sees the vision of chiropractic to be looking like in the future. So anyway, strapped down for an armchair ride with a difference. Over to Stu Burnson. Okay, so welcome back to the Cairo London podcast, everyone. Uh, today I am joined, well, Luke Brady has joined me for one, uh, my co-founder at Cairo London. Uh, but we're following up an interview we did with Sam Wang from Cairo One in the US with, I guess you're the co-founder of Cairo One, Stu Bernson. Yes. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Great to be on with you both. Now, where, let's, let's just talk about where you are. I'm intrigued sure. to know the location of you, you right now as we're chatting away. Yeah, so, um, you know, talk about uh, bringing to fruition goals and dreams. Uh, I was sitting in a um, seminar or retreat, don't remember which it was, but uh, the goal was to write down a hundred uh, dreams and wishes, and you could start out pretty strong. And it's interesting how fast you run out. Like you get to like twenty five or thirty, you're like, okay, I'm I'm dreamed out of what I'd like to have in my life. And so it took quite a bit of effort. Um, and one of those things was uh, to have a home in the mountains and a home on an island. And so the, uh, the home in the mountains came about 14 years ago and we have a spectacular, uh, ranch out in Colorado and, uh, the home in the islands just came about a year ago. So I'm sitting in Puerto Rico, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, about a block from the beach. Um, and it's pretty beautiful. No, I, cause when I reached out to you, I'm like, I think we've got to do this podcast when you're in Puerto Rico, right? Because uh, that's going to put you in the frame of mind just to kind of give us some proper gold, right? So, right. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're just sort of a little bit of space away from the day-to-day, 
maybe maybe the thoughts come clearer yeah it's it's um it's been interesting and you know in the last uh four months five months since um uh all the coronavirus chaos the um the ability to work remotely and be effective i think has been 10x and so although i've been i work remote probably about 20 day uh, 20 days a month and i'm physically uh at corporate headquarters probably i'm back in chicago probably about 10 days but i'm physically in the corporate headquarters probably around 8 days a month yeah. and um i think our ability to engage and connect has had to kind of transform you know in the last four months and create ways for people to be effective and people are far more open to it than having to be face to face, you know, and for, for certain, um, there is a benefit to being face to face and knee to knee. Uh, but we've found ways to, you know, connect out of necessity and, you know, there, there is no social distancing. There might be physical distancing. I hate the term social distancing, um, because here we are, you know, thousands of miles away, uh, maybe three time zones off. And um, we're not socially distant. You know, we're connecting and sharing and uh, engaged, although, you know, we are physically distanced. Now, I forgot to say that uh, I'm in London in the UK and Luke is calling in from Edinburgh in the UK. (laughs) So, yeah, we're putting that to the test as well. But for those that didn't catch Sam Wang on the podcast a couple of uh, episodes ago, Sam went into a lot of detail about what Cairo One is. And uh, today's session is not really about going over old territory, but just to recap slightly, Cairo One currently has 73 clinics in six states across the US. Is that correct? Uh, I think seven states, and I think we're pushing... Uh, close to 80 since you talked with Sam. <laughs> well, it was a week ago, you know. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you, you know, that's an interesting point, you know, for, for the chiropractors. And I have the opportunity to be on a lot of um, healthcare stages. And um, uh, there there is a movement in chiropractic, and I think it's uh, – you know, universal. I think the states might be a little bit ahead, but I do think it's universal in the larger chiropractic markets of consolidation and offices coming together and, you know, doctors willing to move in and practice in a group setting, uh, not the traditional uh, uh, term of a group setting where you have, you know, 10 doctors in an office, but in a multi-location group setting, all as part of a team delivering, you know, a more standardized care product like you guys are doing. Yeah. How do you think that, how and even maybe why do you think that's that sort of developed now? And has that been a quite a logical progression or is it something that's sort of come from a few people? Um, well, if you look across healthcare, it's happened to a great extent um, in dentistry. Mm -hmm. It's happened to a great extent in physiotherapy. Um, There are physio groups 
in the states that have uh, six, seven, nine hundred, over a thousand locations. Um, in dentistry, the same. There, I think some of the largest groups are seven hundred plus locations, and the the barrier to entry is more difficult today. You know, there's more regulations, there's more guidelines, it's more expensive. Um, and I think there's a generational culture change that has occurred where, um, you know, I've came out of chiropractic school in 1992. And um, about two weeks ago, I was sitting, uh, Dr. Reekman, Guy Reekman lives about a block and a half, two blocks away from me here in San Juan. And so he uh, had myself, um, Dr. Eddie Diaz, who is a uh, Life University board member and a chiropractor here in Puerto Rico over for dinner. And we were talking about when we were in school. And so that was probably a 25 to 30 year Delta from Dr. Reekman being in school in the 70s to me being in school in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, along with uh, Dr. Eddie Diaz. And um, we couldn't come up with anybody that, as a classmate, that didn't have a chiropractic experience. Like they were there because either they did or someone in their family had experienced a chiropractic miracle, right, in their lives. Their lives were transformed by chiropractic. Um, Or their parents or their uncle was a chiropractor. You know, there was some tight connection. Um, Last night, I was sitting at dinner with another chiropractor um, here in San Juan, um, Sebastian Bonin. And uh, one of his associates was at the table. And she made it to chiropractic school without ever being exposed to chiropractic. It was a a career choice, not a vocational decision. She's turned on with chiropractic. She loves it, but it's a different mindset. They didn't go to school to chiropractic for the same reasons. And so um, I think the mentality is changing across healthcare professions where Doctors want to practice and they don't want to run small businesses, right? The vast majority of us didn't go to school to uh, go into practice and run a practice. We went to school to treat patients and make a difference in people's lives. And then we figured out, oh, crap, in order for us (laughs) to see patients, we actually have to run a business. And, you know, I didn't think I was going to be running a business, when I went to chiropractic school, you know, never even, it never even dawned on me as ignorant uh, and ludicrous as that might sound, never dawned on me that I'd be running a business. I thought, you know, I'm just going to see patients. Yeah. The rest will take care of itself. Yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't even a thought, right? So yeah. it wasn't even, you know, until I was in school and you get exposed to, um, the business of chiropractic, and it's done so poorly anyway. Yep. Um, but I think as the um, the profession progresses and matures, it's a natural um, point mm-hmm. that we're reaching. 
Um, the, the other driving fact of consolidation is uh, interest from outside of the profession into the profession. And so um, consolidation typically occurs in a profession, number one, to uh, serve the professionals themselves. And number two, because there's some sort of financial gain to be made with an economy of scales, right? It's, it's less expensive to run 20 offices um, at, than run 20 individual offices, right. 20 in a group versus 20 individual offices. Yeah. And so um, outside money has been pouring into healthcare. Um, you know, these large groups that I talked about are all private equity or money back. There's some kind of outside investor. They were professionally founded, right? They were founded by a dentist or a physiotherapist or a podiatrist or a chiropractor. And then they built it to some degree of scale. And then there's a successful business model and that attracts outside money. And then that's a whole different game, right? Because they're temporary investors they're looking for a short-term return and then, uh, you know, grow it and sell it. And so, you know, that's just happening in chiropractic and it's happening, you know, across the world. It's happening in Australia. I know it's happening in the UK. Um, Craig, I'm, I'm not aware of the group in Norway, but I'm sure, um, you know, uh, it's going to happen. It was funny that, that that came into a discussion with one of my associates where George was heading to Norway this weekend and his good friends that he studied with have just sold their clinic to this group. Uh, and I can't recall exactly the name of it, but there, there must be just one group within Norway that's doing it because there's 5.5 million people. And yep. according to him, apparently, that they're sort of trying to take a, like a monopoly of the whole scenario so then they can kind of standardise the offering of chiropractic and they have the support, I believe, of the government in the provision of chiropractic as well, where it's a, a kind of a joint payment thing for patients and the government where they both contribute. And, yeah, I think they're, they're sort of they're expanding fairly rapidly. But as you say, when the country's got 5 million people in it compared to maybe 350 million people, it's a bit of a different sort of scenario, isn't it? Yeah, you know, that, that could be... Um either very, very beneficial to the profession or very detrimental. Yeah, it depends who's yeah. driving it, huh? <laughs> Depending on who's driving it and uh, the purpose of it. And I've had this conversation with um, Pat Gentempo, um, Dr. Pat Gentempo, over the years. And it it's a theme that he used to speak on and the importance of staying very independent and cash-based and not reliant on insurance companies. And, you know, we've chosen to disagree. Um, and while I get his philosophical standpoint on it, I, I took a very different uh, approach and we have a very different belief in and around working within the healthcare system versus outside the healthcare system. And, uh, and, and I could really see his point of view because it could be a slippery slope and, uh, being 
quote unquote, on the inside of the system. Um, but we're starting to make some very significant headway and influence within the insurance industry and starting to open up their eyes to um, shifting the paradigm. And, you know, the paradigm within uh, health insurance is to cover as little as you can, have to, right? So collect premiums, invest the premiums, and that's where insurance companies make their money is investing premiums and paying out as few dollars as possible. Um, and so how do you do that? Typically, it's through cutting services, right? Yeah. And or diminishing the amount you'll pay for a service. And that's the easiest way. <clears throat> no one's ever looked at the health of the population that they're insuring. Mm -hmm. Up until probably only in the last decade has population health been something of interest to insurers. And so um, we're starting conversations with some very large insurers that insure millions of lives, not you know thousands, but millions of lives. And having the conversation, you should be looking at chiropractic different. Chiropractic is not a service where you should be limiting the service. Uh, it's one that you should actually be excited to expand the service of chiropractic. Number one, it's very inexpensive. And so in the overall spectrum of their overall spend, we're not even on the grid, right? We're at the bottom left of healthcare spend, um, you know, where cancer, diabetes, heart disease is at the top right of the healthcare spend. And so there's something called value-based care that insurance companies are driving towards. And, and that's where everybody's got skin in the game, including the providers. And so we're um, starting value-based um, contracting with the insurer where they'll pay us our normal uh, pricing, our contracted fees, but if we perform on a higher level than our average and performance would be measured based on outcomes, um, then we would get a kicker, like a 10% premium on the fee. And if we perform below our average, we would get a penalty. So there's an upside and a downside to be focused on the patient and their outcomes and not just fee for service. Now, that's a baby step toward where we're really working towards is what's called whole health of the population. And so we're working our way towards being able to take risk and put our money uh, where our mouth is. And as chiropractors, we've been saying for years, patients under regular chiropractic care have greater overall health. And so we're really working towards give us a population of patients and let's measure what your overall healthcare spend is. And those that are under regular chiropractic care, let's measure their overall healthcare versus the other population. And 
if there's open access and you're actually pushing patients towards adopting a chiropractic lifestyle, our belief is that there will be lower prescription drug use, lower emergency room use, lower urgent care use, lower um, number of surgeries, lower advanced diagnostic studies. And these are things that uh, cost an incredible amount of money. And there's evidence for it. I mean, there's a lot of evidence for it. I'll send you guys um, a study that was done by, I think it was the, uh, it's an American Academy of Actuaries that looked simply at the treatment of low back pain by provider across surgery, physio, chiropractic, and I think exercise. And chiropractic basically showed the sooner you get the patient to the chiropractor, the less money that's going to be spent on that condition by a factor of 10. Oh, so that's obviously pretty appealing to these insurance guys, right? Um, it is. <laughs> but that, that probably answers that question that we had when I posed you before the show, which was, you know, where do you see chiropractic fitting into the provision of healthcare in any country? You know, yeah. And it's, so, it sounds like it's like if we can encourage a healthier lifestyle, and then people are using less drugs, they're, they're healthier generally, but maybe they also have certain measures and outcomes that can be reproducible. And surely it shouldn't be that hard to have an insurance list, <laughs> those that go to the chiropractors, those that don't, and then yeah. just divvy up the payouts, right? Yeah, yep. So, you know, to go back to that conversation <clears throat> of, you know, working inside the system versus outside the system, um, the concern, philosophical concern, was to get caught in the musculoskeletal only paradigm. And, you know, our point of view at Cairo One is well, that's, let's meet people where they're at. Yeah. Right. And then educate them. And that includes payers. And that's why, you know, we start, we're starting at a musculoskeletal basis by saying, hey, get your patients to a chiropractor sooner rather than later, and you're going to save money on orthopedic uh, low back surgeries that don't work uh, the vast majority of the time or are useless the vast majority of the time, right? Let's go spend $7,000 on chiropractic over a two-year time period versus $38,000 for a low back surgery. Mm. Start there and get the results and then take it to whole health. There was a study done in the 90s. It actually was done in Chicago um, by uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, which is one of the largest um, payers in the country. And they commissioned a, um, an HMO study. And the primary care, the patients in the study had their choice of either um, taking out a chiropractor as their primary care doctor or a medical doctor. They simply looked at healthcare utilization in both groups. And the healthcare utilization was significantly lower, not a percentage point or two, in factors of tens lower in all of those areas. And, you know, I think that healthcare is out of control because the system's been broken. You know, as providers, we get paid to provide service. What if the paradigm was flipped where we were getting paid to keep people well? 
not provide more service. And so, you know, no matter how ethical um, uh, you are, you're still getting paid to provide a service. So it sounds like that's the real driver for you, though, to actually get as many clinics set up as possible because if people can't access quality chiro, then they're obviously not able to even have that choice to make. Yeah, so that is one of our driving forces is to be able to saturate a market. So um, for a couple of reasons, one, so we can standardize the delivery of the care because that's important on outcomes. Although there was a interesting study done by United Healthcare, which is probably the largest uh, insurance company in the United States across all the states. And uh, I had a conversation with the gentleman who spearheaded it. I'm losing his name right now. Um, and I was touting how we standardize care, how we standardize delivery, how we have a care algorithm and guidelines and um, how important and relevant that is to be able to reproduce the care patient to patient. And they found that their healthcare dollars decreased in musculoskeletal regardless of the chiropractor. As long as you got the patient to a chiropractor, no matter what the chiropractor was doing, their healthcare spend went down. Only be, my observation is only because, as a profession, we're more conservative in our outlook and our care, and so we're guiding patients towards more conservative care. Uh, and regardless of the technique you use or how you practice, or you know, it was interesting to me that. You know, they didn't have any kind of perspective. I think that's short-sighted. So, you know, we are trying to saturate our markets and be the market leader and uh, have a reproducible product that patients um, could go from location to location and have the same clinical experience and customer experience. Luke, you and I literally had that conversation last night where we were talking about a a new chiropractor that we're taking on board, but she has a very low force technique. And I seem to remember your clinics. Um, That's one of the things that you do not restrict is the chiropractor, so long as they come in and follow that algorithm, acute, subacute, chronic, how long they've had it for, number of traumas, all that sort of stuff, and then there's a, a formula for the sort of care they need, you then leave it up to the chiropractor as to what technique they decide to practice. Is that right? Yeah, we, we do try and give them as much autonomy as possible um, in their certainly in their clinical decision-making. And as long as their uh, results speak for themselves, we give them the autonomy uh, that they want in the acute phase of care. We also do corrective care. So we guide them towards uh, a technique that, you know, is corrective in nature. Yeah. So, you know. So that's uh, they still follow that protocol of the CBP type thing, but then it, it yeah. could be the activator they use or it could be manual sure. adjusting, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Listen, my last two years of practice, I only instrument adjusted um, only because my uh, shoulders were shot. 
right? So, and, you know, it was out of necessity, but I didn't see my clinical findings and outcomes change. Right. And, you know, if, if you could maintain the connection with the patient and uh, not remove the hands on connection, I would have all of our providers use instrument adjusting mm. only because it's highly reproducible from provider to, to provider, right? Mm. I mean, the three of us are all um, about the same size and could probably deliver, you know, a similar adjustment. Um, but if a patient had their eyes closed, they would know, not yeah. by name perhaps, but they would know if it was the same doctor time after time or a different one because it's different. Mm-hmm. We all have a different touch. I think we get wrapped up a little bit on too is, is some of that feedback you get from the patients too, right? Where mm-hmm. they're like, oh, that was different, you know, that type of stuff. Um, so, you know, anyway. So, so how, how, long were you in, how long were you in practice, Stuart? I practiced for about 16 years, 15 mm-hmm. and a half years yep. before we started Cairo One. Yeah. And I've, I've sort of been... Uh, Curious as to what your what sort of a day or a week in the life of, of Stuart sort of looks like. Uh, okay. Yes, and travel, but and and sort of the the role division between yourself and Sam. Um, sure. Could you sort of describe a little bit about that, and, and maybe even how you arrived at, at the different roles? Yeah, so I don't know if Sam went into it, um, but when we came together, there were six guys that founded the company, um, five chiropractors, and one in the chiropractic industry, but not a chiropractor. And we sat around for about six months um, trying to figure out how to build this company and whether or not we should. And we came up with a large enough why to, and then we kind of had to figure out our roles. And I had been driving, so it was two companies. I'd been driving myself and my two partners, the business primarily, and Sam had been driving uh, his business. So uh, we had seven clinics and Sam's, Sam and his two partners had five. And so the six guys threw all uh, of the clinics together, the 12 clinics together. And we started out with <clears throat> separating our roles based on experience and where we thought each person would serve the company best. And then there, um, it came down to Sam and I of who was going to be CEO. And, um, I got the title simply because I'd been out longer and practiced longer and had more experience. And we thought it would look better (laughs) from the outside (laughs) looking in. Uh, and then the truth was nobody knew, how to perform their roles, right? right? We're all chiropractors and running very small businesses um, that grew pretty rapidly. So we were really forgiving in the learning curve um, in discovering how to run our roles. And Sam and I naturally fell into um, a a groove together where we shared an office for years and sat side by side and brainstormed and uh, poked holes in each other's ideas and really became a yin and yang um, kind of energy in building the company. And 
<clears throat> it was never uh, any one way that each you know took a stance and held that stance. Whatever came up, we tended to challenge each other uh, to see if the, you know the direction of the idea was a good direction to go in and really get aligned in the growth. And Sam is uh, a highly detailed system driven. Um, you know, he said, and he may have said it on your interview with him. Um, he's not a creator, but he'll take whatever is out there and make it better. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Yeah. You know, and that's where our procedures and protocols came from where he observed what I was doing that took me years to do and wrote them down mm -hmm. and, uh, built the procedures and protocols around them. And so, you know, I, my job on a day-to-day -day basis is really to hold my leadership team to the vision and the growth of the company and support them in growing uh, the company and fulfilling on the vision and the strategies. And Sam is down in the weeds of it. Sam is, you know, at an operations level and knows an immense amount of detail about almost everything inside the company. He's learning to give some of it up, um, but you know, he, he, he knows uh, every system in the company. Like I don't even know how to go into our time clock system, <laughs> right? And he, he you know, knows the in, ins and outs of our EHR and every software you know, he's played with um, although he's giving up some of that, like he's not as involved wow. in uh, the marketing side um, where we've really uh, excelled our uh, digital tech uh, reach and it's getting fairly sophisticated. And, you know, he's given up not having to know everything in and around that. But it's been a great partnership, you know, for six guys to work so closely together congruently and everybody um, really fell into their roles. And, yeah. you know, today um, we have very different roles than we did 10 years ago. And so how I, I imagine as you were all feeling your way through the, you know, the company and as it, as it grew, I'm sure there were, well, I know that there were some significant ups and downs. I was wondering, um, if the, the core values stayed pretty much the same or have you noticed that the, the core values have evolved with the company? And during some of the trying times, were there some real basic things that you fell back on and used to sort of leverage yourself back out? Yeah, I, I don't think we were unique by any chance uh, of what we went through as a business. I think it was a, a normal progression and it's probably true across all industries and entrepreneurs that are growing businesses. Um, we got away from our core values and got so focused on growth that we lost sight of why we were growing. And so, you know, we were growing for the sake of growing um, versus, you know, growing to fulfill why we started out. And so, you know, in our, down times and you know we've had one major downturn and then we've had 
minor downturns along the road. Um, it's always about getting back to basics and getting back to our core. And, you know, I, when you guys came out and visited, you, you know, you got a sense of the culture of the company and uh, P3 people, patients and performance that um, drive um, kind of the company culture. And there's one thing that we're really proud of um, that we hear over and over again. And so we have people inside and outside the profession uh, come and look at the company all the time. And, you know, we're pretty open book um, as you guys experienced. And the one thing that we hear over and over again um, is, wow, you guys have a great culture. Like the people here want to be here. Like they drank the Kool-Aid in a good way, right? They're, they, they love what they're doing. They're engaged and, you know, they see um, the difference they're making. And, you know, that, that is uh, a real balance, Luke, you know, in, in handling business and maintaining the culture um, along the way. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I was just, you know, when you've got, I can only imagine the early days with sort of, you know, six alpha males all wanting to contribute and at the same time learning their, their roles. Um, forgiveness and understanding must have been a key element for everything were there any you know are there any particular instances or maybe even resources that that sort of helped foster that idea of forgiveness and understanding because that you know that's that must be such a huge element with with so many personalities yeah um the first the first thing that came to mind when you were asking that question is we were very early on um, in operations, maybe six months. And um, one of our founders had a friend who's run a couple companies in his scaled company. So we went out and spent um, a day and a half kind of looking at his operations, how he scaled it, how he runs it. And then he was uh, very gracious to sit down and call things how they were. Mm-hmm. And he pretty much said, okay, you've got six founders that are all alpha males and everything I hear you guys, um, everybody's running the company. It's not going to work. And so you guys better figure out before you leave the room today, who's really going to run the company and mm-hmm. who are you really going to back? And so we did, we left that way. And, you know, prior to that day, it was, everything was by committee, right? And Mm -hmm. we make decisions by committee and Mm -hmm. it didn't work. You know, it, it was very difficult to get anything done. And, um, we shifted how we ran the business. So once a month, we would have a founders meeting and then every other time throughout the month, you were an employee, right? And you put on your employee hat and you had a role to play and you had KPIs. And very early on, we decided we don't really care how many hours you put in in a week. You know, you, if it takes you 
eight hours a day or 27 hours a day to get your job done. That's what you had to do. And we're only going to base it on um, KPIs um, and reaching the metrics that we set up. And then when everybody, you know, had their screw ups along the way, we did just have to forgive, forget and support that person in getting their job done. So we weren't going to let anybody fail along the way. Hmm. And, you know, people have life experiences and people get married and have babies and get divorces and all sorts of distractions along the way. And we were just really, you know, supportive as long as the company was growing. Hmm. And um, we also committed that if somebody's job grew outside of their skill set, that we would support them in either growing into it or support them in taking on something differently. Yeah. And that's happened along the line. <clears throat> like um, one of our founders, uh, Mark, ran clinical operations and it grew way outside of his skill sets and he knew it and stepped down and Sam stepped up into that role yeah, right. and took it over. Yep. And Mark's a great coach. And he coaches our top performers. Amazing. So going into picking up on that, Luke, the the KPIs for each of the partners is important. But is that you touched on the fact that you, you Sam said you've got something like 107 chiropractors working in the company. And, you know, it's obviously, that's a big number. And the you're talking about the culture that you guys have and how, how it's commented on regularly, but, but how do you, especially when you have that number of people, keep the, the fire burning in the belly of those individuals who work with you, especially when you may not, you know, I'm sure you don't see many of them uh, that yeah. often, right? Um, yeah, you know, today um, I probably could recognize all of the docs and wouldn't know every doc um, by name because I'm not there, right? I'm not a hundred percent connected, but I connect with our doctors um, at least monthly. Yep. Um, just last Friday, um, you know, we did a zoom call as a, a company. Um, we stay highly connected to what our doctors values are. And so um the we created a, a department called uh, performance, and uh, I th- I don't know if you met uh, George Walker. He's our chief performance officer, sure. and <clears throat> his job is to understand what each doctor wants and values, and then how to align it with the company's values and outcomes. And so how, how does a doctor become successful by their definition while the company is successful? Can you have both? Mm. And we believe that you can, and that we could really support our doctors in their fullest potential. Like almost, I think half of our doctors are female Mm -hmm. and a large number of our doctors are our mothers that became mothers while 
they were running practices. And that was a really difficult thing, uh, you know, in the profession 15, 20 years ago, if, you know, you had to choose whether or not you were going to be a mother or a chiropractor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And today, um, our doctors don't have to make that choice. They get to be both because we could support them. And so, you know, that's just one of, that's just an example of looking in. And I remember our, our earliest female docs saying, so, you know, I'm a little bit afraid to tell you, but Hmm. I want to start a family. Yeah. Yeah. And we're like, great, let's figure out how you could still, you know, maintain your practice and have what you want. And so that's really been a driving force in staying connected um, because we care. We care about them fulfilling their purpose and their vision and their fullest potential, not in spite of the company, but because of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that when you've got the certain size that you do, then the logistics of that is you have someone step in for a period of time and then there's always the option for the mother to return. Um, yep. But look, uh, I've got a specific question. If you did a Zoom call last week, uh, if you've got 107 chiropractors, how many turned up? Um, on that call, I that's a selfish have, question, by the way, because I had a yeah, Zoom call yeah. last week uh, with our group. Ninety. We have very high uh, participation rates, so ninety plus percent mm-hmm. um, participation in all of our meetings. Um, we track it, um, and uh, we if we have a low participation rate, we look internally and go, boy, we're not providing value because we don't want people to just get on a call to be there. And George um, does a great job in laying out a format and keeping um, everybody engaged through the chat function, um, asking questions and having them respond um, and making sure what we're talking about is really relevant to them. But I assume it's not a penalty if they don't engage. It's like a reflection back on yourself of like, what are we doing that isn't right? Yeah. Yep. So, so I, I, I do know they, they do have, you know, required things that they need to attend. Hmm. And um, I don't know that we really have to have taken steps or have needed to enforce that anytime recently because I don't hear it being discussed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I remember you were telling me um, a brief story about a chap who was, I think, one day aiming to maybe move into the role that you currently have and he called you up maybe even on a Sunday morning with this idea for for a, a, a team meeting that wasn't actually scheduled for another 18 months into the future. And he'd already outlined the topics and the content of this particular meeting. He was a highly motivated young man. And I was kind of wondering, um, I mean, is he sort of a flash in the pan? You have some um, unique characters who sort of have this desire that's just burning bright already. Um, or is that something that, you know, you, you consciously cultivate? And do you, remember, do you remember who I might be talking about? Uh, I, I do. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting. I, um, I've been guilty of it myself of being highly engaged in something and then, um, 
I remember with a mentor of mine being highly, highly engaged in what they were doing and really turned on and uh, said, I want to do this along by your side. And he said something very simple. He said, we'll see if you do. (laughs) Right. And I'm like, boy, that's funny. You know, kind of deflated me a little bit, but it was a gut check. And it turned out that I didn't. Right. And, you know, I asked him years later, I said, do you remember that? He goes, of course I remember. I said, "Um, what were you thinking? He goes, I wasn't thinking anything. I was just going to see whether or not that was your truth by your actions. And for certain, you know, that comes up periodically. And the truth is, it doesn't come to fruition. And we certainly will foster growth, right? So um, one of the things we're very proud of is creating uh, career paths for those chiropractors that do want to move from practice to supporting the company in another role other than a clinician. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, you know when they're serious, when they do it in spite of the income exchange, because uh-huh. they can make significantly more income practicing than they can say running revenue cycle. Mm. Right. But if they're highly engaged and love it and want to support the company in that, um, we have a clinician who does all of our physician recruiting. Oh, wow. Although it's a valuable job and important to the company growth, there's no way we could compensate her at the same level as we can a provider. But she loves it, right? And you know, she's taking it on, and she's good at it. Yep. And I know you've also got. Uh, it's not just the the doctors that you have um, career paths available as well. I mean, a lot of your support staff or the chiropractic support staff also have the options to to move up through the companies as well. Yeah, I was on a uh, Zoom call um, yesterday morning with our director of clinical operations. So she reports directly to Sam and she pretty much runs all the clinics. Mm -hmm. So she manages the day-to-day operations of all the doctors and all the clinical staff. So she's managing, I don't Mm -hmm. know, roughly 350 people under her um, across all the clinics. Uh, plus her her core team, which is probably another five or six people that she uh, leads. She started as a, a chiropractic assistant, and she brought up, she was laughing. Um, she's been with the company 11 years, straight out of college. I think it was her second job that she started as a chiropractic assistant and now is running the largest department um, in the company. Brilliant. And we're laughing at, she had her, um, her, uh, in the United States, it's called a W-2. It's the uh, IRS, the tax reporting of your income. Uh, And she had it from her first year. And, you know, I think she was joking. uh, You know, I think she made 23 or $24,000 her first year. Yeah. (laughs) 
right? And now, you know, she's in a significant leadership role and does an incredible job. And, you know, there's numerous people like that. And we get an immense amount of, you know, joy seeing people grow and take on different roles. And and there's a balance um, of having people from uh, the inside and the outside balance in the leadership roles. So, like our chief marketing officer is from outside the company and somebody who's come in and has the skill sets that nobody else did have, nor could we wait um, and be patient enough for somebody to develop them. So it's knowing, you know, who could, who could fulfill the role. And I, and personally, I think um, both are important. One comes with historical knowledge and one comes with, you know, a very, uh, um, very specific knowledge about their uh, department. Uh, um, just to come back to maybe the, the idea of a mentor, it's not many chiropractors have the, uh, I'm going to call it a luxury, if not a benefit of having <coughs> uh, a guy Reichman living a block away. Right. Um, and I know you've also have a strong sense of history in the profession and a lot of respect for it. Um, you know, over the years, have there been any, you know, significant mentors, um, both from in and outside the profession that you've often sort of leaned on and you feel free <coughs> to name drop if you, if you like? Sure. Sure. Um, certainly, uh, John Martini has probably been uh, the most significant uh, long-term mentor um, of mine. One of my earliest uh, consultants, uh, Van Kerrigan, who was not a chiropractor, um, who worked with all six of the founders, um, worked with me first um, for years, and we co-ventured in offices, um, was a very significant mentor, and really taught me um, uh, communication skills and how to connect with people, which was critical uh, in my twenties. Um, it's interesting for the first time, you know, Sam probably went into it, uh, about two years ago, we took on, um, an investor and it was the first time, <clears throat> um, I officially became an employee of, uh, the company, you know, for sure I was an employee, but you know, we we're founder owners, uh, and reporting to a board of directors. And um, that's been an interesting uh, adaptation to uh, having accountability and a very positive one where, you know, you have people that you are accountable to mm. and, you know, that aren't going to buy your bullshit when you're bullshitting. And, uh, it's, it's been a great experience for me to really, uh, on a quarterly basis, know what I have to go do and then report in when we have and have not. And there have been times where we have not, you know, and, and sit there and have to go, well, no, we did not hit the goals that we said we were going to hit. And then just take it and take the feedback and then go back at it. Uh, 
I've had, you know, a lot of, as I'm sure you guys have had virtual mentors, right. That, you know, somebody that, um, you've engaged with either reading or, you know, through, uh, audio and, uh, was very fortunate in my, um, early growth to get turned on to both inside chiropractic and outside chiropractic of really studying masters of what they do. You know, anybody from, you know, what everybody knows, Tony Robbins to um, uh, even more toward a spiritual side, uh, Ram Das, um, and really take that and not, uh, only see one, but one, only one perspective. And I know people could get, I've done it myself, get very entangled in just one uh, perspective. Like you could, you know, take a, a Ram Das and go, I'm only going to listen to that. And that, that informs everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they become your guru and you don't take in any other input. And the, the interesting thing is I don't think any mentor actually wants that for their mentee Mm. that they want a balanced perspective. Yeah. When I, I have, I guess you can almost say a couple of virtual mentors and some of them are very close friends and I'll find myself in a situation where I think, right, what would this particular person do? And invariably that person is going to, sort of quote or refer me to one of their mentors anyway that they would have used in a similar situation. So yeah. it's almost like you're channeling what somebody would be doing as they're going through their own process of who would they fall back on or yep. onto. <clears throat> and it, it can become quite a nice sort of rabbit hole to go down. Um, and and half, In fact, I actually called a dear friend of, of well, actually Craig in mine, um, Don Murray, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he didn't answer, but I left a voicemail and I just said to him, listen, I'm actually, this is going to sound weird, but I'm just calling to thank you because for the, over the last, over the last few months I've been in practice and, and it's been a very interesting time for everybody, but there's been numerous occasions where I've thought, oh my goodness, what would Don do in this situation? And so he actually was helping me a lot without actually even knowing it because I would just be asking him this question in my mind and he I would think, right, he would say this, and that's what I went and did. So, anyway, he eventually returned my call and said that was a really wonderful, lovely message that he wasn't expecting. It was, you yeah, know. I, it's, it's a great comment, Luke. Um, many years ago, I was at a weekend retreat um, with CJ Mertz. Um, I don't know what presence he has in the UK historically, um, but he ran presence a, in Australia historically. Yeah, yeah he ran a huge um, consulting group practice management group called the waiting list practice in the nineties. And I was at a retreat with him. And one of the exercises was to write down all of your mentors and exactly what you said, ask the question, what would they do? What would they tell you in this moment? And it was so telling you know, that you can get a tremendous amount of feedback <clears throat> by referencing those people virtually if you studied, you know, and know how they would react and get you out of your own mind. 
Yeah. The other thing that I think it was, <clears throat> excuse me, really, excuse me for one moment. The other thing that I think was um, also very telling along those lines is uh, when going through a really challenging time and like you did, I don't know what, what the matter was, but you reached out to your support network. And I, and I did that when we were going through our, a major downturn, we thought we were going to lose the company. Um, I just reached out to the people um, that were close to me and, you know, dared enough to share what was going on. Right. Yeah. And, um, Patch and Temple was one of them. Right. And he goes, Oh boy, you know, I went through that in, uh, 2007 and, you know, you know, the one thing I did was, you know, kept telling myself, I look forward to the time that I could look back at this and yeah. right. And it was amazing. I, I went about five people deep and everybody mm. had their war story mm. yeah. and the scars that, and, you know, and shared the scars. And I've got to tell you, building scar tissue is really important. You know, going <laughs> yeah. You know, this, this, uh, the COVID chaos could have been catastrophic mm. to our business and it's made our business stronger, you know, and we've shot some, uh, texts back and forth over it. And uh, there are numbers that we've moved um, and acted quickly on. And part of it is because I've had the ability and the opportunity to lead through a crisis before. Yeah, and right. so, you know, we right. weren't caught off guard um, and we were able to move fast. And a lot of it is because of the scar tissue that's been built up and uh, knowing that other people have, you know, have gone through it. Yes. So, Stu, what, um, that's all very insightful stuff, and the, uh, I really, it must be a, quite an opportunity to have, like, that board of directors that you actually have to sort of present to four times a year. And we all know that, you know, once you get into that little comfort zone, once you're, you know, whether you're an individual practitioner or even the running a, your own business where it's something you've created, but if you don't have anyone to sort of hold yourself accountable to, um, then you can end up just, so what, if you don't reach that target, you know? Um, yeah, you buy so, your own bullshit, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and I think too. You, yeah. you yeah. and Luke, you know, could buy each other's bullshit. I, th I think we are. <laughs> yeah. And, and we found the six of us, um, you know, would do that. We'd buy each other's bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, it, it takes some guts to say, okay, don't buy my bullshit. Tell me the, tell me the truth. Yeah. Um, the risk there is um, you're not going to get the, you know, the, the courtesy return. You know, one of my earliest mentors said, you know, most relationships somewhere along the line, you agree to buy each other's bullshit consciously <laughs> or unconsciously. Right. Yeah. And you both smile at each other. Oh, you buy mine. I'll buy yours. Yeah. Okay. It's a deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but what, uh, what does the future, uh, you've obviously got some accountability and some plans uh, and, Sam was mentioning it, and obviously, since I last spoke, obviously, maybe a couple of other practices have joined the group. But 
it's a pretty big vision that uh, well, I guess you guys have and with the support of this other group maybe that to sort of allow you and give you the capacity to do that, right, but not make it any easier. What's the, what's the future look like? Yeah, you know, we've always talked about reaching a tipping point um, in the United States where uh, chiropractic becomes the, the first place people go to create a wellness lifestyle. And, you know, people aren't asking, um, uh, do you go to a chiropractor? They ask, who is your chiropractor? And if we want to take that step, uh, one step further, who's your Cairo one chiropractor. And so where it just becomes such a cultural thing that like nobody is surprised that you go see a dentist, right? They don't go, Oh, you see a dentist, Mm. you know, where they do with chiropractor. Oh, you see a chiropractor, (laughs) you know, versus who is your chiropractor would be the paradigm shift. And so we believe that we have to hit uh, a tipping point of society using chiropractors on a regular basis. And we inside, and one of the things you mentioned earlier is um, Norway, um, you know, we just happen to be in the US, so we need a thousand clinics um, all saying the same thing and giving the same message for it to sink in to the culture. It would be, so that's what we're up to, right? We're building uh, to a tipping point. Hmm. Um, It would be really interesting, you know, to do that in a very controlled, small country um, like a Norway where you can really control the message and to the community um, and really influence the outcome. Yeah. So, you know, so in the meantime, we have our, we have our heads down. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I think uh, how many people are in the UK? Well, there's about 65 million in the UK, including like Scotland and Wales. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, a bit of a bigger chunk to bite off than 5 million in Norway. But, you know, I, th- I think it's something that is accomplishable. Um, yeah, but you look at the numbers and I was speaking to one of the presidents of the association. There's two main associations in the, in the UK, the UCA and the right. United Chiropractors and the British Chiropractors. And mm-hmm. we were talking about the fact that I think there's only something like three and a half thousand registered chiropractors in the UK. And when you compare that to 65 million, you know, I'm not great at the maths, but I don't yeah. think it's not many. <laughs> it's not many. Um, yeah. Which is why there's a bit of a drive for new um, colleges of chiropractic. And there's a one that's three years old in London now, uh, McTimony. We've actually just employed two more McTimony chiropractors, uh, our first McTimony chiropractors, and they're great. Um, so, you know, I know they're doing great work um, and they are going through a restructuring to build an even stronger program at McTimony. Mm. It was was something that came up with Sam too, is I'm like, you have this great program of mentorship for your chiropractors joining your group. 
have you had an Aussie Cairo or a British Cairo join in? And he seems to think that he hadn't. So that's one of my missions is to try and get one of the guys. Well, we don't want one of our guys to go over to you, by the way, but uh, (laughs) I'd like to see a Brit make their way into your program, you know? Yeah, no, you know, we'd love to have that. And I don't know what the the licensing issues are around that. I think Mm -hmm. they just have to be able to pass um, all the boards. Yeah, Yeah. it's just the US Um, boards, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but you know, I don't. You know, I don't see um, any other hurdle than that. And we would. How wonderful would it be <clears throat> to have that kind of influence um, across the way? And you know, the the other thing you asked me, you know, kind of where where do you see the future? And um, I think you know the the biggest hurdle, and we've talked about this. Uh, when we visited, uh, I think when we visited uh, last November in the UK at dinner, the biggest hurdle to growth are providers. Mm. Right. So, and, yeah. The, the, I was going to ask uh, to get one of, one of the biggest frustrations that I have in our profession is that there's such a distorted or, or different message from chiropractor to chiropractor and chiropractor to, to patient. Um, how do you describe what chiropractic is? Like, what is you know, what what is, what is the message? What is it when you meet somebody who's never been a chiropractor before? How do you explain what it is we do, why we do it, why it's important? Yeah, we're we're trying to shift the conversation um, from one of um, spinal biomechanics to neurology, right? And that we're really as chiropractors. Um, influencing the neurology of the body and that the neurology controls as, you know, if, if I were talking to a lay person, you know, I would simply say chiropractors, um, most people think chiropractors are neck and back pain docs and that they um, are spinal focused. And uh, although that, may be true on the surface, what we really are, are nerve system doctors and focused on the function of the nerve system. The nerve system just happens to be inside the spine. If it was in your nose, we would be nose doctors, uh, but it's not. No. And so a little finger, <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, you know, our job as a chiropractor is to uh, have your nerve system function at its optimum. So the rest of your body can function at its optimum. And the, you know, that's the basis of health along with your lifestyle. And part of being well or having a wellness lifestyle is chiropractic along with, you know, nutrition, along with exercise, along with mental health. Mm-hmm. And, um, staying engaged in a wellness lifestyle and you know chiropractic is an important part of that you can't get a healthy nerve system anywhere else Mm. like there are alternative methods of maintaining your physical fitness you could ride a bike you could swim you could you know row um you run. could run and run and run and run, Luke. <laughs> uh, but but there is only one way to maintain a healthy functioning nerve system when there's interference. 
And that is the chiropractic adjustment. It's in the same way that the dentist is the only one that does the teeth, right? Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. Thank you. Amazing. Hey, Stu, you've, uh, you've been really generous with your time right from day one when you, uh, I still love that story, how you reached out to our website about a day before you were about to come to London in May 2019. And you were like, I'm in town for the weekend seeing a show. Um, can you give us a call? <laughs> and then I'm like, who is this guy? Um, uh, because you even just left it in the speech bubble of our website, right? right. Um, and it made its way to me and, uh, I'm like, he's either trying to sell me something or, uh, it's going to be great, you know? Um, but it was great, you know, and then we sat in that coffee shop over the road from part across two, three hours almost, uh, as they were closing around us and, um, always been so generous with your time though. And, more so when we then decided to go to Chicago. Thank God we did at the time because I don't think we can now. Um, uh, But, you know, a full 24-hour experience, you know, where we turned up at the steakhouse and obviously got the super-size me steakhouse uh, uh, steak uh, with, yeah, again, uh, all six of you guys were around the table at that time to meet these out-of-towners, you know. Um, Super generous, thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time again today. Um, we get so much value, you know, and we just, we, we love what we do. And, you know, part of what we do is, is sharing and learning and, you know, just, um, I don't know if it's a chiropractic thing, but I think it is. I think we're a different breed and, um, love to sit around and, and talk, right. Talk chiropractic. Mm. And, you know, we get so much value out of sharing our vision and uh, supporting other, other people that have similar visions. And, um, you know, I don't think it's a competitive thing, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a competition out there. And that's why, you know, we've maintained an open book and uh, I think it's great for the profession. Yeah. So, you know, thanks for, you know, giving us a platform to share, share our vision. Yeah. And but that, that's the whole point of getting you and Sam on this thing. And uh, you asked before we even went on air um, to say, you know, who listens to this thing. And, and hopefully there's a lot of chiropractors out there that do listen to this and starts, you know, expanding their mind about what it is that they offer to their yeah. individual clients into their individual practices um, and start thinking about a little bit of the bigger picture because that will be great. Yeah, I think um, it would be uh, – transformational if we got out of our own little bubbles called our office Mm. and um, really converged. You know, it's funny. You said, well, there are two chiropractic associations and, you know, I think every state in the U S has at least two, right. (laughs) And there are two national associations, you know, and if we could just get past ourselves Mm. Um, I don't know if Sam mentioned, I know we're wrapping up, but, um, uh, the Cairo one wellness centers are very traditional, um, wellness based practices, right? They're really strong chiropractic practices, subluxation based, Mm. um, corrective care based family oriented. And, um, about a year ago, um, we, acquired a another vertical 
um, called, uh, it was originally called KC Corps um, for Kansas City, where it was founded. Uh, but it's now called Myocore. And they're hospital-based uh, chiropractic offices. And they are more soft tissue-based. Sorry about the squeaking. It's one of the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we came. We came to Puerto Rico with one dog. We now have three. Oh, <laughs> so gross. We, yeah, we just rescued a couple dogs about two weeks ago. Um, the uh, uh, just lost it with the dog squeaking. You were talking about the Myocore, the hospital. Oh, the Myocore vertical is chiropractic practice a complete different way. It's primarily soft tissue. Um, they're doing, um, you know, a lot of Graston and ART work and it's a great brand. They do great work mm -hmm. and, you know, it is primarily musculoskeletal based. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, the founder said, boy, we practice really differently. Are you going to make me into a Cairo one office? I said, no, I respect what you're doing and there's a place for what you're doing. And, you know, as long as you could hold both, there's a time and place for both. And, and there is time. I'm sure, Luke, I'm sure you've accessed it with the amount of running you do where yeah. some mm -hmm. tissue myofascial work is critical. And, you know, you don't necessarily want to be adjusted for okay. that issue. Yep. And, and I think if we could kind of, you know, in this highly polarized environment we currently oh, yeah. are in, um, you know, politically, if we could, so, so to speak, reach across the aisle, um, we have far more in common than we have different. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of my little uh, goals is to get the president of the other association on this pod and have a conversation with them. And I see it, my job, one of my jobs is to actually bring those two guys together because yeah, the reality is they're not they're not offering that massively different thing, you know. Um, and it's just like history and ego that I think gets in the road at this thing. You know? um, yeah, and, and if we're really serving our our membership or our chiropractic community, we would bring them together. We would set aside and go. Yes, I like to wear black shirts, and you like to wear pink. You know. Okay, great. How, how, how is that relevant? We're both wearing shirts. Mm. Yep. <laughs> you know, we have far more similarities than we do differences and we could do far greater work together. Yeah. Than separately. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, watch this space. Uh, we'll see, huh? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, we just, we keep pushing, right? We'll just keep pushing. Yeah. Right. As always, you're so you're so incredibly generous with your your, your time and knowledge, and um, I just want to thank you so much again. My pleasure, Luke. Uh, when are you, when are you guys going to make it back over here? As soon well, as they let us. <laughs> you know what, though, Luke, yeah. you missed out on this uh, in our private chat. But like the first thing Stu said with the podcast is, is like, well, I think we should record it in Puerto Rico. So you should come. Right. Oh, um, <laughs> absolutely. And I didn't even yeah. look into the possibility as to whether or not that was, uh, and uh, I was able to or not. So um, yeah, you, you, you could come to Puerto Rico. You have to have had a, a COVID test 72 hours prior to entering. 
Okay. Um, and not necessarily, they just ask that you sign a, an online uh, form mm-hmm. yep. that you have been tested and whether you have the results or not is irrelevant. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting in Puerto Rico. <laughs> we were looking for a new venue or a venue for a, some sort of you know, gathering, and uh, I don't think we were thinking far enough uh, outside of the box. <laughs> we were talking Yorkshire, not uh, not Puerto yeah, Rico. You know, we we Shar and I travel a lot, and we were talking yesterday that you know the amount of travel has just come to a screeching. Hall, and we were at dinner last night with our friend Sebastian, and we're like, the minute things start opening up, we got to get to Italy, we got to get to France, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and just we got to get out of our little uh, totally zone here. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great way, you know, you spread the message, and and that's how how if everybody was traveling and and, and seeing that there is that we all share, we're all human, you know, that yeah. we, we all have more similarities and differences. And, and I think yeah. now is such an important time to, to be reminded of that on many levels. Yeah. Cool. All right, guys, well, let's, let's wrap it up. I'm off. just going to, uh, thanks very much. <laughs>